Drum roll, please. Finalists for the Stats and Stories Data Visualization Contest have now been selected. We need your help to decide which finalist will join Rosemary and me to celebrate our 300th episode. Entries from the five finalists we selected have been posted on our website at statsandstories.net slash voting. Be sure to review each entry. Clicking on the link to interact with the contribution of each finalist and see what you can take away from their stunning designs and provide some comments about why you selected this finalist as your favorite. Voting runs through the end of August at statsandstories.net slash voting. So get your vote in now and stay tuned for our upcoming 300th episode. Now, here is your regularly scheduled episode. The Consortium for the Advancement of Undergraduate Statistics Education, aka CAUSE, has held the United States Conference on Teaching Statistics, also known as US COTS or US COTS, every other year since 2005. This conference enables teachers of statistics to exchange ideas and discover how to improve their teaching. The theme of this year's conference was communicating with and about data, a topic near and dear to us on the Stats and Stories podcast. Two sub-themes were explored as part of this conference, helping students to communicate the process and results of their statistical analysis and helping teachers to communicate with students in order to develop their understanding of statistical concepts and their ability to implement statistical methods. Four conversations with leaders and speakers at the United States Conference on Teaching Statistics were recorded on site and we are happy to feature these in a collection of episodes of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm here again with other friends and colleagues at the United States Conference on Teaching Statistics. I'm getting away from the whole debate about us costs versus U.S. COTS. I, I just, I've realized this is a religious debate and discussion at this gathering, so I, I will try to avoid that. But, but I'm delighted to be joined here by Amy Hogan from Brooklyn Technical High School and Kelly Spoon from San Diego Mesa College. Thank you both for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's it's great. And and you know, here I am, you know, stealing you from an afternoon of other outstanding activities to talk about stat ed with Amy and Kelly, who work in a context that maybe others have not experienced. Uh, in particular, stat in high school and stat at a community college. I, I will tell you that the only stat class, the only class I didn't take in my high school was statistics. Yeah, I didn't take statistics in high school either. Did, so it, did it exist? It didn't exist, and so I think I took everything. And the AP statistics class didn't exist until, you know, the late 90s. So it's still relatively new. Uh, I mean, a lot of people are teaching non-AP classes for sure, but the AP curriculum is relatively new, and especially in comparison to calculus, which has been around for decades and decades. Um, so that's a little bit different. So, so in the so Amy in the, the high school context, you is, is AP kind of one of the the big uh, 
areas of emphasis for you in terms of stat education, or are you doing it in other, other aspects of the math program? So I only teach an AP level class, but I have taught a non-AP level class before. But our school, I think the emphasis is to offer kids the eligibility to get college credit for that level. And I think also the idea that the curriculum is a sufficient curriculum. So it, it's something that they like to have as well as want to have. Great. Kelly, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the, the context in which you're teaching statistics? So I, I teach at a community college within a math department. And so when you said you didn't take stats in high school, I didn't take stats in high school. And I also didn't take stats in undergrad. I was a math major. And so most of the people I teach with probably did a math major and then a master's in math um, and have none to very few stats classes in their, their background. Uh, so it is interesting to teach stats within a mathematics department, which I know happens at some of the four years as well, but we have people who teach stats who've never taught it before, have never taken it before, and they'll come and ask uh, for support and help. And that's also true at high school. We have lots of people who are learning stats as, as they they're teaching it. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's a challenge. I, I mean, we've certainly yeah. seen that at, at, at my institution. We had some of that as well. Yeah. So so can you talk a little bit about the context? I mean, I mean, tell us a little bit about the school where you're teaching, just to help people understand the community that you're, you're serving. Yeah. So I teach at a, a public high school in New York City, but it's a little bit different because it's one of the specialized high schools. And so students have to take an entrance exam, and they're generally more, I would say, like they're into school more than other students. Um, so their level of engagement is a little bit better than maybe some other kids in the public school systems. But we also have students that have a lot of variability. So I get students who are very high achieving at math, and then I get students who are very high achieving in other subjects, but they're interested in statistics. So I have a very wide variability of kids to be teaching. But the idea is just to have access to stats and this introduction in sort of introductory level rather than teaching them the whole canon. So it's like basic logic of stats or communicating ideas with stats or understanding how to make conclusions from data and things like that. Like those are the basics of the AP statistics curriculum. Okay. Um, and I really like that. And you're doing this in, in New York City. So yeah. you're doing it yeah. you know, with, with a community that's yeah, based there. Yeah, a lot from... of different kids from different backgrounds with you know, some kids, their you know, parents are very well educated. Some kids, they're the first kid to even maybe complete high school. So you have lots of, you know, cultural things that are happening with their what they're bringing to the classroom. Yeah. Well, very good. Yeah. So, so what? How about San Diego Mesa College? What's what's the context in which you're doing this this work, Kelly? So we're a about twenty five thousand student large campus. So we're wow. a pretty large school. Um, we're part of a three campus district, which can make curriculum changes and other things a bit of a challenge because we have to get three different districts or different campuses all on board with anything we want to do. And if you're not familiar with community colleges, uh, they are open to anyone. So there's anyone who wants to take a class can sign up. Uh, And we have a lot of recent legislation in California that has made it so that not only can anyone come and take a class, but we are no longer allowed to place students in any sort of remedial non-credit bearing classes. So Anyone who wants to can take statistics without having any necessarily background in terms of math. So that, that, that adds a wrinkle. And then we're, we're a Hispanic-serving institution. We're an Asian-American Pacific Islander-serving institution. So we have a very diverse student population. So 
that's as, as you think about how you've been doing this for a while. Both both of you have been working in these contexts for almost a decade or more than a decade. And as you think about the, what's changed, what what's no, notable for you as you think about when you started teaching statistics at your institutions versus some of what you're doing now? I think for me, the demand of the class has increased amazingly. I mean, we started with two sections um, 13 years ago in my school, and now we have potential to have 12 or 13 sections because um, we have a large student body. But the demand is increasing. I think students are becoming more aware about this idea of statistics and the usefulness of it and just the idea that it's something other than you know, the, the general progression of algebra, geometry to calculus route. And so that's appealing for some kids. I, I think it's a great way to explore ideas that might be a little bit different. So, How about at the community college? <laughs> yeah, I, I mentioned in California we've had two uh, pieces of legislation about three or four years ago, maybe even five now. Uh, we had AB 705, which was a piece of legislation that said we could not place any students into remedial math. So every student needed to be able to take a transferable class okay. their first semester at our campus. And so we responded by creating supported versions of all of these classes that were at that sort of gateway level. So um, our traditional three unit, three hours a week stats class, we added a one unit lab to and made it a six hour a week class so we could be able to support those skills that they needed to be successful. And now recently, uh, starting in the fall, we have AB 1705, uh, which gets the fact that a number of schools were not placing students into those lower level classes, but they were still offering and still advising students to take those classes. So AB 1705 says that schools can no longer even offer those classes unless they are leading towards a degree of some sort. So if you have some sort of vocational degree that needs an Algebra 2, you can have Algebra 2. But otherwise, students need to be taking trigonometry, stats, pre-calc, uh, college algebra, something that is credit-bearing to begin with, and that we have to give them credit for whatever they did in high school, which I think is a brilliant thing because we've been making students retake pre-calculus and all these other courses because we don't trust that the high school teachers taught it well enough, um, and now we have to open the doors to our calculus class to any student who's taken pre-calculus and successfully passed it. So it'll be interesting, but that's coming in fall. I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you talk about some of the changes that, that some of the legislation has, has brought, it seems also it's, it's following on the heels of kind of the impact of COVID on these communities, whether it's, you know, a, a, some middle schoolers coming into high school or whether it's high schoolers going into community college. Have, have you seen some, some tuning required as part of what you're teaching in your, your classes? I mean, for me, I, I teach, I mean, I teach some of the other levels of students too, and it's, it's obvious that students missed certain topics. Okay. I, I wouldn't even say like, and you never know because they might be coming from different places. So sometimes you have to cover a couple of topics, but I haven't found that at the end it's different than on what I've seen before. But I do think that you do have to acknowledge that everybody's pathway to that place might have been a little bit different. Um, and I think we're acknowledging that a little bit better with COVID. Um, and I would say I think most people in response are, are trying to figure out ways to show more grace to students, which I think is a beautiful change that COVID brought about, right? Like this idea that we need, like if a student misses class, I'm not, I'm not asking for a doctor's note or a copy of the, I am letting them take that space if they need it and then hopefully providing them an alternate way to get the material they may have missed. I also 
in terms of COVID, there's been sort of a push since everyone learned online at the community colleges, and it's so helpful for access for students, for students yeah. who yeah. couldn't drive to campus, who have, have to take care of their children, all these, or have to work, right? Like, who have yeah. these work schedules that change to not have to be in a physical space uh, at a certain time. The online courses have added such access. I, I'm sad that in a number of situations, I feel like we're in this rush to get back on campus and back in person. And I'm like, we opened the doors to all these students during COVID. Let's not shut them now. Oh, it, interesting point. I, my, I attended my dad's college graduation because he went to school for 12 years at night. And I, I wonder about what, what he would have, what this would have meant for him had such, such opportunities been there to be able to do, have some option to not be driving as frequently to can get to class at night. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued at your observation. That's, that's it's been a, a big part of the work I've been doing. I'm on our, our online success team. And so we've done a lot of student surveys and sort of asked, why are you, why are you taking your classes online? And so that voice is really important to me um, and to fight th for those courses to stay that way. And stats, thankfully, everyone believes can be taught online, at least at my campus. So. Um, but some of the STEM classes, the fight is harder. <laughs> so, so now I've got the hard question. You know? okay. so, so take out your, your crystal ball and, and, our, and think about the future. What, you've seen changes over, you know, that, that you've observed over the course of your, your history, your work history, and, and maybe your study history of statistics. I mean, uh, so what, what do you think might be kind of the next, the next thing to come down the pike for stat and I'll put and data science education. I think I, I, I th I'm hoping that there's going to be better support for teachers to have professional development that helps them move with all of these changes as they go because I, I can imagine you know if I'm if I haven't been in school in 20 years I'm not necessarily going to have access to the new things that are happening in this field, and it's it's happening so rapidly. In 10 years, it's going to be a different story, right? So, you know, having that access to good professional development and resources for teachers to, um, you know, keep keep things, I don't want to say changing, but keeping them evolving in the, in the motion that the world is evolving. Because you can get kind of caught up in a bubble where you've taught the same class for 10 years, and if you're not evolving it, then, you know, it becomes, um, you know, I don't want to say it becomes obsolete, but it becomes less important. And I will say Alan did a talk at Mesa, Alan Rossman, one time, and he said, the moment I think I've got this teaching thing down is the moment I retire. And I'm like, that is my motto right. for life. Yeah. Right. And so if you're, if you're constantly evolving, but, it, but that takes, you know, that takes support. So what are some of the ways that the two of you work to kind of, keep evolving and, and learning more about about your art and practice? I mean, it's doing things like coming to conferences and having conversations with like-minded educators where you're sharing things. And I, I mean, I think it was said today at the conference, you know, it's the small things that make big impact, right? I think that was in Larry Lesser's uh, keynote. But it, it is true that you, you change one word in a question that you've asked a thousand times. And that can create a big impact. And those little, you know, those little things add up. Um, and I don't think you should change a lot at one time, you know. But, um, and, but meeting with other people and sharing, yeah. And I will say conferences, again, there's a lot of privilege in coming to a conference, oh, right, yeah. in terms of the, the, the ability to get away, the costs. And so 
Um, I love conferences, but I a book. We had a great read, reading group for the last U.S. conference on teaching statistics. Um, so I, I read a lot of books. And then how I originally fangirled on uh, Amy here was I found her on Twitter. And, like, there's a lot or of... Through blogs or through, you know, professional learning networks. It, it just, you know, it makes a difference when you you have a name, you have a, a contact. Or you, you, say, you say to somebody at a dinner, you know, oh, so-and-so has this really fabulous way that they talk about insert, you know, subject. And then the next thing you know, you're, you know, emailing that person and sharing ideas. Well, I'm, the fact that the two of you are, are, are here as, at the, the United States Conference on Teaching Statistics and continuing to grow and be exposed to these new ideas shows this kind of commitment. And, I, you know, that's, that's wonderful for your students. And it's, <laughs> yeah, you're, they will certainly benefit, as, as have mine, from doing this kind sure. of work. Yeah. Well, thank you again for taking this time. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, this is uh, John Baylor, roving reporter at the U.S. Conference on Teaching Statistics, having the, the pleasure and de delight to have this opportunity to talk to, to colleagues about their important work. Right now, we're going to be having a conversation with Danny Kaplan, Professor Emeritus at McAllister College, also just coming off a three-year position with the U.S. Air Force Academy. Uh, Danny is unique in that he, well, maybe not fully unique. You can maybe tell me a little bit about this. I am what I am. You are, you are but, I, but I mean unique in the sense that you've attended every in-person USCOTS since it first started in 2005. I have. I started in 2005. It was my first meaningful statistics conference. I had been to JSM because when I started teaching statistics, I thought that's what you do. And I was very glad to make acquaintance with the USCOTS community and with statistics educators. Very, so, very supportive group. Oh, uh, you know, I mean, finding, finding our community is something that's been critical for my, my yeah, career path. I think it I, helps us all. Yeah. So, so tell, tell us a little bit about kind of your experience coming to, to USCOTS for the first time. And, and what were you thinking about early in your teaching career, teaching about statistics? Well, I had no background in statistics, or really in mathematics for that matter. I came to McAllister from a physiology department at McGill Medical School. Okay. And during my interview at McAllister, they asked me if I would be willing, if it came up, if it was needed, would I be willing to teach a statistics course section or two? And it being an interview. <laughs> <laughs> do I want the job? <laughs> I said I would be excited to do that, but I didn't know what it was. Unfortunately, they did not ask me what a t-test is because then I wouldn't have gotten the job. Uh, and so, of course, my first semester there, two of my three courses were statistics sections. <laughs> and I was given a textbook and some software, I won't say what either of those were, but okay. they're still, still around in the various editions, and stayed about two weeks ahead of my students. And that's where I learned what a t-test was. Okay. I also learned that people use tables from the back of the book in statistics. Oh, mercy. Yep. I remember doing that too. So that was a surprise. And I liked it because it was applied. Okay. I could see the uses of it. I didn't like it because it didn't make any sense, or I was trying oh, so, so to tell, make tell sense. So tell me more. What do you What do you mean? But didn't make sense to you at the time? Well, it, first of all, it doesn't have a coherent structure where one topic meshes with another okay. topic. It's a okay. series okay. of topics. For example, early on, people introduced the mean, 
and the median. Yeah. And they talk about when one is appropriate or when not. Well, when you move on in the course, you never hear from the median again. It's sailed away. <laughs> okay. Or given any idea how you would incorporate that into okay. the statistics that you do later on. Okay. Uh, so so that, this suggests that, that an epiphany occurred at some point in terms of how you thought about the teaching of statistics. Well, I like telling stories. And it's easier to tell stories in a statistics class than it is in, a, say, a linear algebra class. Okay, fair point. Uh, so I, I enjoyed teaching it, even if it didn't make sense. And I was learning something each semester, but I had no intention of becoming a statistician. Okay. I just thought this was something that you do when you're asked to do it. And then I did have an epiphany of sorts. Okay. And part of it came from George Cobb's book on experimental design, which is, has a very spatial and, I'll say, linear algebraic formulation, yeah. even if it's not that formal. So when he says orthogonal, he means orthogonal. <laughs> and I had heard that term, but no one ever said, oh, they're orthogonal to one another. They just said, this is an orthogonal method. And I didn't know what they were talking about. What was the vector okay. space? I didn't know anything about that. And also, uh, I had a relatively modern linear algebra background. So I knew about matrix decomposition, and one day I said, all of this is QR decomposition, isn't it? And then that made it much easier for me to understand, but it also made it much easier for me to explain to students because I could do it with the geometric analogy of projection. Yeah, right? yeah. And uh, so that's when I started to think about writing my own textbook, which would show the geometry, and I thought this I was new to this. Okay. And actually, one place I visited when I was doing this was Penn State, where I, I wanted to show them this geometric approach really makes things much simpler and unifies things, you know, and thinking, oh, the correlation coefficient is an angle, a cosine of an angle, but yeah. an angle. Every student knows what an angle is. Not every student knows what a coefficient is. Okay. And so if you're talking about okay. the alignment okay. of two variables, yeah, yeah. an angle is the appropriate metaphor. So I went around talking to people in statistics departments, you know, about this. Yeah. And there'd always be someone who said, well, you know, because they, this had been around Long since Fisher. Yeah. And I basically had just rediscovered part of what Fisher did with huge hints because there was this legacy yeah. <laughs> of hints left by people who write software sure, or of course. Fisher. But that's what I thought was my, my innovation. And in fact, I am a character in a novel as a forlorn statistics educator who's trying to get the <laughs> statistics community to adopt a geometric approach to statistics. What, what novel? A Purity by John Franzen. Oh, how fun. Yeah. How fun. Yeah, you know, it's, it, I mean, I, you said a couple of things that really resonate with me. One is, is the, these, these understanding of the geometry of the system and the light bulbs that go off. I mean, it, it was such, for, such a beautiful way to think about this, and it just made perfect sense to understand some of the stability in regression models and some of the insights it gleans. But the other thing that you mentioned was, was sort of the, the topics hanging together in, in a statistics book or in a statistics class. Yes. And I, I, I recall that the, for me, one of the big 
encounters was with the introduction to the practice of statistics by Moran McCabe. Nice book. And I and the thing that resonated for me was the piece of this organizing principle of describing data, producing data, and drawing conclusions from data as kind of this this overarching theme that is then fleshed out. Yes. Really spoke to me as a as an instructor decades yes. ago. Yes. And you know, coming not with from a background in statistics, I was trying to think what was interesting. And I liked Simpson's paradox examples, which I had encountered uh, before. Nice. And nice. I, so I thought I'll teach this via Simpson's paradox. So why don't, why don't you just, for, there, there may be some people listening that have never heard of Simpson's paradox, believe it or not. There are some people, you know, my dad listens to this sometimes. And, and you know, so can you give just a quick summary of, of an example that sort of speaks to you? So a Simpson's paradox is, I think, a misnomer. The Simpsons might be right. Uh, <laughs> But it relates, it has to do with the relationship between two variables, which we might as well call a response and an explanatory variable. Okay. And let's suppose that there's a positive correlation, a positive relationship between them. And then you stratify by another variable, which we might as well call a covariate, although that's not in the index of most statistics textbooks. And what is surprising to many people is that when you stratify the sign of the correlation can change as if the relationship turned around backwards. And it's natural to ask which one is right or for students to ask, are either of them right then if they're both right and they contradict one another? Uh, so can you give, give the example of sort of your, conf the, this covariate and then the original response predictor? Well, I, I'll give an example that comes from Moore's book. Okay. And it, it really impressed me when I encountered it the first okay. semester I was teaching from it. It's near the beginning. It was about SAT scores and which states have higher average SAT scores. And I'm glad to say that Minnesota has <laughs> among the highest average SAT scores in the country, uh, as does Iowa, uh, North and South Dakota. And this is not what most people think. They think it's going to be Massachusetts or California. I don't, you know, whatever it is. So showing some Midwestern love here. You know, right. Yeah. And I asked ask students why they thought this was. And they came up with reasons which would not now be appropriate to discuss okay. in a class that, that one would even then turn away from. Okay. But what they didn't, they knew, but they didn't, factor into it is that there's the SAT and the achievement tests. And in those high SAT scoring states, most students take the achievement tests. It's only the ones who are going out of state or out of region who take the SAT. And those tend to be, they don't have to be, but they tend to be the stronger students. So they get good scores. That, that made a big impression on me. And then George Will maybe about the same time, had a column which was inane about whether uh, it's worthwhile to pay teachers more. Of okay. course, I have a professional stake <laughs> in that question. But he pointed out that states which pay their teachers the most tend to have the lowest average SAT scores. And this was syndicated. Right. Uh, but what's going on is that States have low average SAT scores when a big fraction of the students take uh, the SAT. Okay. Maine is near 100% of 
who take it. So the weaker students and the stronger students are both taking them. And in other states like Mississippi, it's really not the ordinary student who takes the SAT. And so there's smart people in Mississippi just as there are in Maine. But you don't see the dumb Mississippians taking the SAT because they either took the ACT or they didn't take anything. So this is a cautionary tale of kind of a little, little bit of data self-defense when consuming, consuming news. Right. Abs absolutely. I think it's important to be able to think about covariates, about other factors that could influence. And the graphs are quite compelling when you look at uh, academic performance, whatever that means, but if you measure it by average SAT score in a state, by per-pupil expenditures, uh, you see that there's a negative correlation. But if you stratify by the fraction of students taking the SAT, or better, if you use it in a regression model as a continuous variable, but you see that turn around okay. immediately. All right, so I, I got one last question for you. What's the next big thing in statistics education? Look into your crystal ball and make a prediction about what you think kind of the, the where is statistics education heading in the future? I always like ending with a really easy question. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Well, of course, statistics education is such a decentralized uh, enterprise, and people will do what they do. We're already seeing more uh, data science topics in statistics education. And so I think as people become more comfortable with computing, they will incorporate such data wrangling and visualizations other than the histogram or box and whisker plot. I mean, these are archaic visualizations invented in the era of the typewriter. It's amazing how long it takes to move on from them. But one thing I don't expect to change, but I find that sad, is that we'll continue to be dominated in interest stats by the legacy of a nonsense dispute between frequentists and Bayesians. And and this arises, for example, in hypothesis testing, where actually we're lying to students when we talk about hypothesis students uh, testing. It's an implicit lie. We're saying it makes sense. It doesn't make any sense. And then we look to the people who tried to make sense of it successfully, Neyman and Pearson, and we include by name an essential component in a sensible program you know, the alternative hypothesis, but then what we teach is not any kind of alternative hypothesis at, at all. Uh, and okay. we continue to use words like significance uh, in talking about statistical results, which we know is misleading. We know will be misinterpreted. Okay. So, you're, so the, the Bayesian frequentists, you know, the, the fact that that still seems to be a concern, you, you don't think it's resolved. I, I find it has mellowed a lot that, that the early contro you know, controversy that, that might have been there for some has dissipated. Although well, perhaps in the teaching of intro stat, it still has the, such a strong frequentist flavor well, that you don't see that. I was trained as an engineer, and all engineers are Bayesians because you have to make decisions. There's nothing in the frequentist framework that helps you make a decision. Uh, okay. Well, you know, That'd be a strong statement. That's, that's, that's a, so thank you for, for such a mellow way of, of ending. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I actually think that, that if, if you think about effect sizes and you think about you know, what decisions you might want to make in support of it, 
I, by the way, I, I don't reject. I, I certainly do a lot of Bayesian stuff as part of things yeah, we've done. Yeah, so. actually, I don't think that what will happen is that the first course will become a Bayesian no, course. No. Though there's a great example of that in McKeithen's work, okay. right? And so that's certainly worth it. But I haven't, I haven't focused on it so much. Uh, I think that in terms of the under, uh, abilities of students to comprehend what's going on, I think full Bayes is not going to help them immediately. But there are simple contexts for Bayes, which do. And I also think that, and I've always done this because hypothesis testing never made sense to me. Okay. And I was trying to find some way to explain it to my students. And from the very beginning, I introduced it in a Bayesian framework. And I said, here's how you would do it if you had all the information that you need. But what if, for some reason, you say there's no prior belief that that's subjective? Right. What if there's no such thing as a likelihood of an alternative hypothesis? Then you can't calculate a likelihood ratio, and you can't calculate a posterior. And so I say, if that information's missing, then what's the best you could do? You know, what would be a meaningful step forward? Okay. And I think hypothesis testing is that, but I also think that information doesn't have to be missing. Okay. Uh, and we ignored it at our professional peril. Well, you know, it's been exciting to see the, the practice of our discipline and, and education within it evolve over the last three plus decades. And you could see practice. that, you've been able to see that at USCOTS. The first USCOTS I went to was George Cobb talking essentially about bootstrapping and permutation tests and why people should take these seriously. And there's been a huge amount of turning in that direction. I think very productively, helpfully so. It's, it, well, it's always a comforting to think that our discipline is evolving in responding to, to kind of new ideas and better ways of doing things. Right. Well, I, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this this uh, rather rather abbreviated stats and short stories, but it's such, been such a delight to chat with you, Danny. John, I'm glad to be here. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.